Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 179 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. And today I'm happy to have my friend Tom Fox here to uh, discuss the Biden Department of Justice priorities and enforcement outlook. Hello, everyone. How, hope you're doing well. Hope you're staying safe, healthy, getting access to the vaccine, and uh, slowly we can uh, build a recovery here. Uh, from the pandemic and the economic uh, disruptions. Um, in any event, uh, glad to have Tom uh, join me. It's uh, usually uh, beginning of the year, end of the year type of retrospectives. We try to do those. So uh, let's look at going forward what uh, the Department of Justice is going to look like. So um, before we get started, let's have a word from our sponsor, Steel Compliance Solutions. Steel Compliance is the global leader in compliance and ethics management. Steel's compliance and ethics platform is comprehensive, robust, and easy to use to promote a company's culture of compliance. Steel partners with the world's largest, most respected companies to deliver compliance products and services that help organizations embrace a culture of compliance while protecting their brand. Building an ethical culture is a complex undertaking that requires a detailed understanding of the global compliance environment, considerable time, and specialized expertise. Steel's end-to-end ethics and compliance platform is designed to provide compliance officers with the solutions they need to proactively address changing regulatory and reputational risks. Steel's ethics and compliance automated platform offers critical functions designed to promote a speak-up culture to advance employee engagement, reporting, and incident management, Investigate promptly and fairly potential incidents to ensure compliance with your organization's code of conduct and applicable laws and regulations, including anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, antitrust, sanctions, cybersecurity, and data privacy. Manage your organization's compliance policies and procedures to ensure that policies are updated and disseminated effectively so that employees understand your organization's compliance requirements. Educate and engage your organization to promote understanding in how your compliance program applies to -to day-to-day operations. And evaluate and monitor your organization's business partners, vendors, suppliers, and customers to mitigate risk and ensure adherence to your organization's ethics and compliance requirements. To learn more about Steel's compliance solutions, please contact us at email steelglobal.com or call 415-692-5000. Welcome, Tom. Happy New Year to you, and thanks for joining us for this uh, important discussion on the Biden administration and enforcement. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be back. Well, uh, look at this stage. Here's what we know. We know that Merrick Garland has been nominated to become the attorney general. Uh, We know that Lisa Monaco is the deputy attorney general, but we also have a whole new administration. 
you know, which uh, surrounding players and partners uh, coming into play. But just your thoughts, uh, Tom, on seeing the transition from a Trump administration uh, to a Biden administration and what that means for DOJ. So, Mike, the uh, obviously uh, Trump uh, tried to eviscerate the uh, Department of Justice. Um, both uh, both his attorneys generals were abysmal. Um, they destroyed uh, a large part of the DOJ and its credibility. And I really can't think of a better person to lead the DOJ than Merrick Garland, well-respected, uh, obviously court of appeals judge who was denied opportunity to moved to the Supreme Court uh, by uh, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans. But if you want someone who's going to restore credibility, Merrick Garland will be that person. And so his biggest job is going to be to rebuild not not so much the credibility of the Department of Justice, but the clarity of the Department of Justice and the morale of the Department of Justice within the department. And then, of course, the bigger uh, thing he has to rebuild is the Department of Justice is in many ways the people's law firm. Uh, it represents the right. people of the United States. And I think when you go into court, in fact, you say, I represent the people of the United States. And that's a, a role that I know you and, and many others have and do take seriously. And rebuilding that credibility in a wide variety of areas is going to be incredibly important. And I think some of those are going to be the priorities of the Department of Justice. I would include civil rights. I would include uh, environmental. I would include uh, and um, the uh, the priorities of this administration, I think, will dovetail into how Garland rebuilds uh, the Department of Justice. If we move down to some kind of specific uh, areas and uh, particularly in the fraud section, we don't know who the uh, the heads of the the sections will be so we don't know who's going to have the or the, the divisions rather so we don't know who's going to have the criminal division dan Kahn is currently the acting head of the fraud section well known to both of us um yeah but they're going to have to rebuild uh not so much the fcpa enforcement but the pipeline um the pipeline of cases dropped significantly during uh the trump administration for whatever reason whether they weren't self-reported or or they weren't picking up tips from the typical sources of disgruntled employees. Uh, it could well have been that foreign investigative agencies were reluctant to share information with the Department of Justice because Trump and his administration were so corrupt, a wide variety of other areas or reasons. So to, to rebuild that pipeline of cases and then move forward uh, in prosecution, and I can't emphasize enough the, the number of areas I think this Will be, which will be priorities for this administration. I mentioned environmental, I mentioned civil rights, I mentioned fraud, the uh, uh, PPP and PPE uh, enforcement right. actions will continue uh, as well. Yeah. yeah, and I also think uh, False Claims Act, uh, you know, healthcare, and if you're a defense contractor or in the healthcare industry in particular, uh, look, uh, False Claims Act cases are going to go uh, crazy, I think. But 
Let me, but I want to back up on one other point that you mentioned before we get to the pipeline of cases, because I think that's real. You make a really good point, and I want to dig into that in a minute. But let's let's even just start with the relationship that you think that Merrick Garland, as the Attorney General, is going and representing, is going to have in terms of his interactions with the department, with the White House. I mean, you know, now we're reading reports about how you know Trump was calling over people trying to, you know, almost try to carry out a coup uh, in getting rid of the deputy attorney general, who was the acting attorney general, uh, Rosen. So, I mean, what do you think is going to happen in terms of Merrick Garland and what will the Biden administration folks, how will they interact in the White House with the Justice Department? I think it will return to the way it was under the Obama administration, which was there will not be political interference. There will be reports to the uh, White House on uh, what the department's uh, priorities are and how they're prosecuting. I think that uh, President Biden will have a good working relationship with the attorney general, particularly around cases that the attorney general is prosecuting. But I think it will be a much more hands off. And if we could take right. the point you raised about the attempted coup that Trump wanted to throw out acting attorney general, I believe Rosen, and put uh, his people in, we, we should point out that the, there was someone in the attorney general's office in the Department of Justice who directed the uh, uh, U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia to leave because they believed that they weren't investigating fraud claims in Georgia, non-existent fraud claims, thoroughly enough. So we don't know who made that call to the um, U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Georgia, but that means there's a corrupt there was there's corrupt officials in the Department of Justice. These were Trump political appointees. Uh, hopefully, all of these people will have left. But it, it the Department of Justice has to be cleaned up. It has to be cleaned up in right. that way. It has to be cleaned up by people who are not going to uh, fire civil servants simply because they won't do a president's bidding. There's no place for that, in the certainly in the Department of Justice, but within the entire administration. And there are, um, you know, some serious questions need to be asked. Who, who made those calls and who made the decision to fire the um, Northern District, the, uh, the District? Yeah, the Atlanta uh, U.S. Attorney. I forgot his name, Pack. Yeah. I mean, look, that guy was told to pack it up and leave. And because he wasn't doing the president's bidding and that, you know, I mean, remember going back to the Bush administration, we had the firing of seven U.S. attorneys, which became a big, big scandal. Um, and that was just because they weren't following priorities. That right. had nothing to do with a specific plot to to uh, challenge the Georgia results and get the president back in power you know, Trump back in power. So that it's a, you know, we don't know all the facts yet. And I think it's going to come out and I think it's going to be even more demoralizing for this uh, Justice Department. And I try to imagine, you know, my days as being a line assistant there and to watch this. Uh, and, and before we even get to this, I mean, Bill Barr started, you know, sent people from DOJ to the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. to review all these cases. Well, I can tell you if that had happened when I was there, you want to sink morale. That's the first way you start to sink morale 
when we kept DOJ away because we thought we were better than DOJ as prosecutors because we're in court every day. They never go to court. And to have, I mean, it, you know, you mentioned the AGs before we even get to the scandal. To me, the fact that Barr is willing to put in somebody who he wants, then he puts in an acting U.S. attorney who he wanted and said, look at the Flynn case. Let's review the Flynn case. Let's review this. Let's review the uh, Roger Stone case because there were U.S. AUSAs involved in that case as well. And look what happened. I can't think of a worse thing for morale. And I think that, you know, Merrick Garland knows the department backwards and forwards. And he worked there. He was a line assistant when I was there. I worked with him. I think he knows full well what the proper role of DOJ is. Now, there are big cases where they get involved. The Oklahoma City bombing case, DOJ ran that case, and for rightful reasons. But those th the things you're mentioning about you know, the attorney generals we had over the last four years, I, I think that for the average prosecutor in the DOJ, their morale must be so low right now, I can't even imagine you know, uh, why, how they feel. That now they must be feeling great about Merrick Garland, but they have been pummeled for years here. And Mike, that brings up another issue that I don't know, and I don't think we know how to evaluate, which is how many cases were either slow walked or not investigated by line prosecutors because they were afraid of uh, either main justice or DOJ interference. And it may exactly. be there's multiple cases. We certainly saw that in the uh, Southern District of New York, um, where uh, Barr fired uh, the uh, attorney, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Uh, so yeah. there may be a lot of cases that are sitting waiting to just kind of come out of the open or into the open now because of the corruption of the prior administration. Well, it seemed to me like the Stormy Daniels investigation, when they got into the Trump organization and they were working out deals and trying to, but at some point, somebody slowed that down and it had to come from DOJ, I believe. But we'll, maybe we'll find out uh, someday, but we'll see. I mean, look, the best thing we can say is morale's going to improve. The professionalism is going to improve, but you raise some serious issues about what needs to be fixed. There's more that needs to be fixed and uncovered um, in terms of protecting, uh, you know, civil servants and line prosecutors and the integrity of the department as well as uh, law enforcement. So, but let's go to the pipeline for a second because you raise a really interesting issue. I read something recently, you know, people have been touting that the Trump, you know, administration brought record amounts, uh, levels of, let's say, FCPA enforcement. And I think I read somewhere that most of these investigations that they brought to a conclusion were actually started before the Trump administration. And I don't know if you have the, a similar perception of that. So does that mean they they is the pipeline in terms of them initiating new cases? Is it is it has it gone down and they were just getting credit for cases that were started by the Obama administration? Does that make do you think there's any truth to that? Well, I think there's truth to that, Mike, but I guess it doesn't offend me or not offend me one way or the other, simply because I know the length of time it, it takes to resolve these cases. A five to right. seven years is not unusual. So 
it would not surprise me that um, cases that certainly the fact pattern occurred in the prior administrations um, occurred, uh, like I said, prior to the time that Trump became president. But even right. if the, uh, the investigations were started, so really that doesn't um, surprise me uh, at all. What we yeah. don't know is once again to the pipeline. How many how many companies uh, either didn't self-report when they would have previously because they believe that uh, this this Department of Justice was slowing down on its uh, prosecutions. Yeah, that could have happened uh, as well. So let's let's go through some of the the categories of cases or areas that we think uh, you know it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I think everybody, um, I mean, we can talk about civil rights in a minute, but I think to me. Uh, people are wondering right off the bat is what's going to happen to FCPA enforcement? And we have, uh, you know, a new DOJ, new attorney general. We also have at the SEC, uh, uh, Gary Gensler coming in, who's supposed to be really pro enforcement from his CFTC days. What do you what do you anticipate in that in the in our favorite FCPA area? Well, let me start with the SEC, because I think we're going to see. I think there were nine SEC enforcement actions in 2020. That's the lowest it's been in quite some time. And I think we'll see uh, the SEC ramp up and it's based upon their charge to represent, excuse me, investigate public companies around the accounting provisions, books and records and internal controls. And I think we're gonna see a lot more cases around uh, internal controls going forward. And that ties into an area that I think the DOJ is going to also explore further um, which is not civil investigations around internal controls, but asking, are your internal controls effective? And that's uh, something that I think companies are going to have to start answering to the, um, certainly to the Securities and Exchange Commission. But if the Department of Justice starts asking that question, uh, absent a bribe, uh, that's going to be uh, a, a new area of inquiry for the Department of Justice. And I think that they are going to uh, require proof of the effectiveness. Um, and I base that on some cases that actually came out last year, Mike, and it was yeah. cases uh, by the OCC, uh, number one, in the uh, Citibank case and the JP Morgan case. And then in um, 2021, we saw the Capital One case, where the CFPB, excuse me, FinCEN um, punished or, or sanctioned Capital One or not having not not having a compliance program, but not having an effective compliance program. Now those are regulators who who oversee investigate heavily regulated industries, um, certainly regulated beyond traditional co commercial corporations. But I think the DOJ may look at that and say that's an area that we need to uh, explore further. I'm not quite sure how it would play out with their requirements around uh, you know a criminal complaint around intent, intent to engage in bribery and corruption. But on the civil side of things, they may start looking at that question as well. And of course, we also had the first CFTC um, FCPA investigation and enforcement action. And that was around the Vital company. That was also in last fall. So we've seen some new and interesting wrinkles from uh, regulators, and we may see those migrate over to the Department of Justice. We've already seen the influence of the OFAC 
uh, Compliance Framework and the DOJ Antitrust uh, Compliance Program influence the FCPAs or the FCPA units uh, evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Yeah, that you raise a really interesting issue because I have said if DOJ ever turns to sort of if, uh, you know internal controls, books and records, and looks at a criminal case even against an individual, uh, where there's let's say not a bribe, they don't have the proof of the bribe, and can, will they eventually at some point bring a criminal case just on uh, controls or books and records and circumvention? Uh, being a criminal offense. And, you know, the first thing we saw in terms of the evolution of DOJ's criminal scheme uh, prosecutions is now they regularly charge anti-money laundering violations in every bribery case because it's a 20-year offense. And they went against foreign officials that way, but now they also are using AML charges. And what you may be predicting, and we should watch for this, is they may, when they need a new envelope to push on, it's definitely going to be internal controls and books and records. And the regulators have set them up in a sense, is what you're saying. They've set them up by saying these controls, we're saying as a matter of civil enforcement, are defective or they failed to conduct proper oversight and they failed to, to craft appropriate uh, internal controls. And that's going to be a really interesting development if that occurs. I agree. So then let's look at let's look at two priority areas which we know they are going to there's going to be a priorities. Uh, one I think is environmental crime uh, enforcement, and I and and I tend to see that that definitely changes depending upon politics, uh, civil rights in terms of civil enforcement against police departments on pattern and practice cases. Uh, I also think we're going to see just more in general, a more robust civil rights enforcement scheme on Section 7 uh, cases that the U.S. may bring. Um, but if I'm sitting as a general counsel with environmental risks uh, right now uh, or FCPA risks, I'm going to be looking at my compliance department and saying, first off, how are we doing on environmental issues? Uh, and uh, on FCPA, I'm going to say, let's, uh, we better do another assessment here and make sure we're in the right place on uh, compliance here with regard to FCPA as well. Um, uh, what do you think of that in terms of the, and do you see the same thing with civil rights or environmental crimes? Um, I didn't see a lot of environmental crime enforcement coming out of this Department of Justice in terms of yeah, the criminal section. Right. Well, let me take the, the civil rights and particularly the uh, uh, police oversight, uh, police department oversight cases. Uh, obviously, we've had a large number of very public um, uh, police actions which resulted in loss of life for individuals um, before they were arrested or obviously found guilty. Uh, those cases are largely not prosecuted at the local level for a variety of reasons. One is the um, rights that most police officers had, have under their union contracts. Uh, second is uh, many prosecutors are reluctant to uh, prosecute police officers um, because they have to work with them every day. And frankly, their political clout is pretty strong. And um, 
thirdly is that even if they're uh, prosecu prosecuted or cases are taken to the grand jury, um, the indictments are, are rarely ever first degree homicide. It may be second degree or some lesser charge, and then they have to go to a jury. And juries typically uh, do not convict police officers. At least uh, local juries don't. Well, uh, the only other remedy is a federal prosecution. And the federal prosecution takes away lo those local political factors I articulated. And so yeah. that it may be appropriate to have a federal jurisdiction, uh, a federal uh, oversight who has, which has jurisdiction and that comes in and brings a federal claim, whether that be civil rights or other, against individual police officers who shoot suspects. So we, that may be one reason we see increase in that. And certainly Bill Barr would never bring uh, that type of case. And I think that's going to change under the uh, Biden administration's Department of Justice. On environmental crimes, I mean, the, the Department of Justice, uh, it wasn't the Department of Justice. President Trump made clear uh, there could be no environmental crimes in the United States. He was right. antithetical right. to anything that was pro-environment. I mean, my God, he, he sold leases in national U.S. national parks. So, I mean, he doesn't give a rat's anything about the environment and prosecuting environmental crime. So I think uh, there will be a wellspring of that because I think uh, many who were on the line of actually whether they uh, violated environmental laws or not um, probably did so under Trump and probably they'll be uh, investigated now. But also I would point to the uh, uh, Carnival uh, Cruise Lines case. Uh, it's mm -hmm. a massive case uh, with a huge uh, five-year monitorship that was environmental crimes. And it was environmental crimes for Carnival Lines dumping waste materials uh, overboard, basically. But when it got to the court appointed or the uh, appointed monitor and the court's uh, continued criticism, it was that Carnival did not put together and put in place an effective compliance program. And so that additional court oversight really led Carnival to changing the way it did business with regard to environmental compliance and indeed all compliance. Yep. And they have a court appointed monitor there, which is making their life miserable. And then uh, obviously their financial situation. So let's, uh, let's go to a couple of other uh, hot button issues, I think, in, in DOJ's remit. Um, we saw money laundering, uh, the Anti-Money Laundering Act, which was part of the override of uh, former President Trump's national uh, veto of the National Defense Authorization Act, included some pretty sweeping money laundering reforms, which now creates, uh, one, uh, beneficial ownership requirements that are targeted at smaller companies and shell companies which I think is gonna be a welcome uh, step since the US is so far behind in uh, beneficial ownership disclosure requirements. And number two is the creation or the increase or the reform of the existing whistleblower program to basically create a new whistleblower program akin to the SEC's, which has uh, obviously, and I think, appears to be pretty successful. So now we're going to see a ramp up, I think, in money laundering uh, enforcement. And the second area that I'd also like to get your comments on, Tom, is False Claims Act. If you're in the healthcare industry or you're a defense contractor, 
it seems to me the Obama administration had a pretty good record of sort of recoveries of as much as eight billion in one year, whereas uh, the recent Justice Department uh, announcement was two billion. So those are two areas that I think uh, could become higher priorities for this administration. Where do you where do you see uh, you know the whistleblower, money laundering, and then sort of false claims act going? Well, let me take the um, AML law of 2020 um, first, because this is a hugely important act. It was the first reform of the Banking Security Act since uh, the Patriot Act of 2001. <clears throat> it really fills a gap that's existed for at least 10 years around lack of information on shell corporations and ultimate beneficial ownership. It uh, is going to create a national database of corporations shell companies and uh, other information that will allow regulators to go after these. Simply uh, right now it's not open to the public, but I assume at some point it's going to be made available. So it will give everyone a really a much better idea of who they're doing business with. The onus is still on the companies to do that. And so if you fail to do so, I think uh, you're going to be uh, a more heavy scrutiny on you going forward. Um, the whistleblower provision is one of the strongest whistleblower provisions there is. It uh, outlaws things that companies did in uh, not exactly direct retaliation, but things like uh, confidentiality agreements and mandating uh, private arbitration if somebody claimed uh, that they were fired for uh, turning in information. Uh, it uh, did away with limits on whistleblower awards, which were previously uh, <clears throat> limited to $100,000, and it made it uh, closer to the SEC's um, up to 30%. I think it's going to become the model for whistleblower uh, actions or whistleblower legislation going forward, and perhaps they'll be able to amend the Dodd-Frank whistleblower <clears throat> to include certain provisions. Um, it uh, allows general counsel, internal audit, and uh, chief compliance officers to be whistleblowers. Uh, so that's kind of a new wrinkle. Uh, we've already heard management side um, lawyers claiming it's the end of the world is nigh uh, because of this. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that's going to be a, a, a very strong law. <clears throat> Lots of obligations around uh, banks, financial institutions, but obviously our customers too. So between that, and there's a couple of other things I'd like to point out, Mike. One is now there's a specific provision around trades and antiquities, which was rife for money laundering previously. All of right. those entities involved in that now have to uh, register on the database. I assume it's going to, uh, they're going to study doing the same thing for real estate, which is a huge area where money laundering has occurred. And I'm sure this will move to uh, art markets as well. Uh, no doubt over the vociferous objections to both <clears throat> those industries, but um, unfortunately they've allowed money laundering to go on far too long. So um, that and was Tom, really, we saw we saw we saw those examples in Goldman Sachs or yes. in uh, uh, Sergeant Marine or one of uh, no uh, Investimentos. The uh, they bought an apartment for somebody as a bribe. Right. And we saw it. And Goldman Sachs, I think J Lo was buying art uh, with well, some of the proceeds. Well, they financed the movie, uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> That's right. 
Exactly. So there you go. I mean, that you make you make a good point in terms of these where these proceeds are going and tightening those regulations up. A very very famous person once told me to follow the money. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> if, if you follow the money, you'll see uh, a lot of these uh, where a lot of these issues uh, go along. And what was the second one, Mike? After money oh, laundering, one false claims, false claims act. And, you know, imagine I always say the False Claims Act, you know, you may complain about the FCPA, but if you want a government stacked enforcement arm uh, game or, you know, set of facts or set of uh, requirements you got to go through. I mean, I've been involved in some False Claims Act cases. The government basically the rule is if the government decides to do it, they win. Yes. Under the the Trump administration, I think there was an overall philosophy against anything that would either cost companies money in the form of regulations or do anything that would keep them from doing business any way they wanted to. And so I think we saw a a very sharp drop in false claims acts. So I think that that would change naturally with a new administration and certainly under Merrick Garland. But more importantly, Mike, I think now uh, after the trillions of dollars released through the uh, payment payment payback protection plan ppp to monies going to hospitals for um uh to help with the covid uh, 19 relief and the general monies that have been pumped into the economy i think and the fraud that was a part of all of those efforts uh whether that fraud was uh, companies taking the money and misapplying the funds by buying luxury goods whether it was criminal enterprises who were uh, uh, somehow banding together and falsely claiming that they were operating entities entitled to money, or whether they used uh, legitimate front companies uh, to get funds and then launder that money to the criminal enterprises. I think the Department of Justice wants to prosecute all of those instances. And, and you that- raise a good point. So it's not just the healthcare and defense industry. Their first priority is going to be going after these PPP fraudsters who, you know, did either misrepresented facts in the loan application or misused the money. And right. And I think all of those um, are, are very valid and important whistleblower claims. And I'm sure somebody's some lawyers smarter than you and I have already got uh, an F- <laughs> FCPA wing around PPP and uh, other false claims acts cases for those who got money, whether they're corporations, whether they were medical institutions, hospitals. And then um, on the defense side, a couple of interesting things there, uh, but these really started under the Trump administration. And one was, uh, I think, largely in response to the uh, cybersecurity attacks, companies now have to have much more robust compliance programs. And it's a wide variety of compliance of laws. It's certainly anti-corruption, but it's also uh, AML and particularly cyber. And Mm. direct contractors to the government have to have those now, and they have to have them in their supply chains all the way down. So I think um, companies who have not gotten that message, if they're government contractors, are going to be potentially uh, uh, up for being sanctioned, whether that being debarred or having to pay a penalty. So I think we're going to see a large number of those. And then after the solar winds hack, uh, that's only going to be exponentially uh, more so because now there's so much awareness of the vulnerabilities of 
not simply suppliers to the U.S. government, but the U.S. government itself and a variety of others. There's heightened awareness and companies who didn't get the message they need to have those procedures in place um, are not going to be able to do business with a foreign government or with the U.S. government going forward. That's a that's an interesting, you know, because of the cybersecurity issue. That's interesting that the defense industry is going to, and for rightful reasons, given the kind of uh, information they and activities they engage in. Well, let's go to we we're getting close to the end here, Tom. Uh, I wanted to wrap up with two topics, but first, let's talk. We haven't mentioned antitrust, and we've seen some criminal cases being brought against the chicken. Uh, processors, which is a great case. I keep saying I need to get into that chicken criminal case uh, and get a client in there, but I haven't so far. Um, but uh, so, you know, we've seen some pretty, you know, steady criminal, although they, they were down a little bit in the first years, but I think that's more, um, it goes up and down. There's usually not political uh, issues that get involved in antitrust. What I do think, however, is civil enforcement and uh, Macon Del Rahim, who is just left and I worked with and is a good friend of mine, I think has come out with a pretty good record and is proud of his record. Um, but we have, you know, these two major uh, monopolization cases against Google and against Facebook. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens on the civil side because Democrats usually uh, ramp up civil enforcement. But what, what do you see happening? So, first of all, we will not have uh, your former friend or your friend who formerly headed the division uh, having to say, look, guys, I'm sorry, but the White House has told us we can't do this. Uh, mm -hmm. We're not going to have White House involvement in the antitrust division. And I know the antitrust. Right. And, there were and there were allegations of that against the time when they tried to block the Time Warner right. um, AT&T merger. That was a vertical merger which people were like, wow, they rarely get involved in vertical mergers. And it all related to CNN, supposedly. Yep. Um, so we won't have that involvement. Interestingly, though, of course, the uh, Google Facebook case or the Google case <clears throat> was brought under the Trump administration. Um, certainly you see that case ongoing uh, aggressively by this Department of Justice. Uh, you're right about traditionally we've seen more civil enforcement actions from the Democratic side. But, you know, here here's a, the political angle I wanted to, to maybe explore with you, Mike. Um, the Republicans, uh, after the election, most specifically and particularly um, in 2021, screened bloody murder about Section 230 of the Internet Act, which protects um uh, tech companies. And they said they right. wanted that repealed. Well, it gives them um, immunity. It gives them yeah. across the board. And it's incredible because every time we did anything related to the internet on the Hill, when we had legislation, they all their lobbyists would come out and say, we need the same protection we have from Section 230. But that type of protection is not available to newspapers. And the last time I checked, we've had newspapers in America. Mm, since the founding of the Republic. Uh, right. So it may have been something that was needed in the 90s when the internet was relatively uh, immature. Uh, it's not needed now. But the Republicans who are screaming bloody murder about this section, they don't seem to understand that if uh, insurrectionists and other purveyors of speech, uh, hate speech, 
get cut off, uh, they're they're not going to be able to sue these companies. Uh, they're going to be in the right. same position as they were before. But the interesting thing to me is the Republicans want something, and I think the, the Democrats equally want it. I think the right. Democrats see no benefit to having that blanket protection, give them the same protection the newspapers uh, have or don't have, and let them deal with it the way newspapers deal with letters to the editors or something else. So it's a very long-winded way of saying there may be more political will for antitrust action against a Facebook, a Google, or other major tech company on really both sides. And I'm to be interested to see what happens domestically. And we haven't even touched what the EU is thinking about doing, but- And EU's already doing. Yeah, they may be much more aggressive in their anti-competitive, they call it anti-competition, their anti-competitive enforcement actions than the US will be. That's a really interesting issue. I, and we may have a meeting of the minds with the Democrats and the Republicans. And if I'm in the tech sector right now, uh, I got to be worried about uh, some of the issues that may come up. I think people are getting a little tired of the sort of uh, community forum with hate speech where it's allowed and things like that, or where they're, they're not regulating it, uh, particularly Facebook in their failure to regulate speech, uh, uh, you know, and, and this is not protected speech. We're talking about incendiary type comments, uh, you know, going back to the Brandenburg, whatever, uh, First Amendment case. So that right. you raise a really good issue. And it may be that antitrust may become the tool for that, Tom, in, in terms of going, you know, uh, we got to get rid of the immunity and they may, uh, antitrust may become a player in that uh, effort. That's a really, uh, it's a good point. So my last issue is our favorite issue, Tom, which is uh, compliance. It seems to me like, uh, you know, ethics and compliance programs continue to rise in importance, they continue to be, you know, viewed as the backstop the, the, to preventing, you know, the full breakdown of corporate America. And how do you see this Justice Department uh, building uh, the relationship with compliance officers, and and what do you think's gonna what what do you think's gonna happen there? So we saw in June of 2020 the release of the updated evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which really changed the focus, Mike. I thought on uh, several aspects of an effective compliance program. The one people point to the most is the data requirement that CCOs have access mm-hmm. to data literally across the corporation. If you don't, you have to explain in a uh, business reason why data is siloed and CCO doesn't have access to it. But it's more than just data, it's information. And how are you using your information to uh, monitor and improve your compliance program? So uh, we used to say do a risk assessment every two or three years. Well, now you do a, you're mandated to do a risk assessment when your risks change. And that flows directly into your continuous monitoring. How are you monitoring the risks your company has um, going forward? And then are you taking that information and looping it back into your compliance program to improve it? So it's really a continuous cycle now. Uh, But that came about, as I said, in June 2020. From the regulatory perspective, I touched upon the where I think uh, regulators are going to go to start asking some hard questions about is your compliance program effective 
And do you have not documentation that you have a compliance program, but you have documentation of its effectiveness? So I think that's going to be a big change. We um, didn't really talk about the evolution of the DOJ's thinking around the obligations of a board of directors on compliance, but I think right. boards are going to have to become more involved in compliance going forward. And the, the risks to companies, we've in this podcast largely focused on regulatory risk, whether that be uh, someone like the Securities and Exchange Commission or the Department of Justice as prosecutors, but the risks now, Mike, are around uh, other stakeholders. In the amplified era of social media, really amplifying messages, if you have a compliance failure, you can be uh, eviscerated in the court of public opinion, um, maybe not before you know about the issue, but certainly after it's become public. And the only way to uh, detect and then prevent these matters, of course, is through a best practices compliance program and then remediate as quickly as you can. So the, the biggest cost to companies are not the fines and penalties, but they're the pre-settlement uh, investigation or remediation and the post-settlement costs. And now it's the drop in the value of their corporations, whether that be a drop in stock value or a drop in, in other value uh, because you have had a compliance uh, violation. Right. It's your reputational hit, which has been taken. But I, I also think, Tom, I mean, you pointed out the, the, the evolution, evolution, however you want to say it, of reactive compliance to basically the saying proactive, meaning continuous monitoring, constant updating. Uh, you know, your risk assessment, should, your risk profile should be updated each year and, and uh, in accordance with that. I also think that the department itself, the prosecutors are pretty sophisticated now in reviewing compliance programs, they've learned a lot and uh, they are pretty sophisticated. And if you don't have certain aspects, you know, basic aspects to a compliance program or best practices considering the risks that you face, you better not only have an explanation, but a documented explanation. And I don't think they're going to be as patient as we all think. Uh, with some of these companies, particularly the companies that have, you know, done well through even throughout this uh, horrible pandemic. So, um, you know, I see the role of the chief compliance officer being elevated yet again. And I think particularly in the financial industry, we're going to see that. Um, I get this sense that the Money Laundering Act passing uh, the the thing you mentioned earlier about the OCC uh, going after people's uh, controls, uh, all the banks, big bank controls. I think things are lining up right now where the regulators uh, and people are getting a little frustrated with the financial industry's failure to um, implement appropriate controls, given their you know they're making a lot of money right now, and uh, people are getting fed up with that. And so I think that's going to permeate uh, DOJ's thinking as well. Uh, I absolutely agree. And I know I said this earlier, but the uh, thinking across the government has evolved. And I have to believe those DOJ prosecutors are talking to their counterparts at the Securities and Exchange Commission, who are talking to their counterparts at OFAC, who 
who are talking to their counterparts at the OCC and at the Fed, right. at the CFTC, at FinCEN, at the CFPB. So I exactly. think their thinking has evolved and their evolutionary thinking is is influencing the Department of Justice around FCPA compliance, the Securities and Exchange Commission around uh, internal controls evaluation and all those of those things. And my, my last point is basically if you're the general counsel or you're the chief compliance officer right now of a company, you have to take into account the greater scrutiny and the greater risk of government enforcement now. Um, and I think that companies have to, uh, CCOs have to be thinking that way and making presentations or, you know, advocating for their departments to senior management and the board. I couldn't agree more, Mike. So on that tone, on that note, well, Tom, hey, thanks so much. If people want to reach you again, the best way, as always, is? Uh, email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I blog every day on the fcpacompliancereport.com, and I post uh, podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com.